Hello, Lucinda here. I just want to say to adults that you might want to listen to this episode yourself before listening with young children as we mention the words self-harm, death and the Manchester bombing in the context of inquests. Hi, I'm Emma Constance. And I'm Lucinda. And together in our Kids Love podcast, we're going to take a look at how laws affect children as we grow up. So what are we going to look at in this episode, Emma Constance? Well, I've heard that some people have brought legal challenges against the police, and I'd like to know more about this. Why do people do this if the police are here to protect us? It's really important to have a legal justice system that we can all trust and that works fairly. The police act as enforcers of the law and have been given very strong powers to do this, so it's even more important that the public can trust them to use their powers correctly. In our society, we have the rule of law, which means that everybody must obey the rules, regulations and laws that govern us all. And that includes the people and organisations who enforce the laws and therefore should be held accountable for their decisions. This is an important way that society can have trust in the justice system. Over the years, we've had reports and public investigations where some groups of people have been found to have been treated badly by the police. So if people think the police have not behaved properly, they are entitled to challenge police actions. Let's talk to Christian Weaver, a barrister from Garden Court North Chambers in Manchester, who specialises in inquests, public inquiries, civil actions against the police and public authorities, prison law and public law. He was ranked as a tier one rising star barrister in the newly published League 500. He sat as the UK Youth Delegate to the Congress of the Council of Europe in 2017 and led the Congress Youth Human Rights Working Group. And he is the author of a book, The Law in 60 Seconds, A Pocket Guide to Your Rights. Hi, Christian. Thank you so much for joining us on our Kids Law podcast today. We are so happy to have you here. Can you please tell us more about your work and day-to-day practice? Thank you so much, Alma Constance and Lucinda, and it's a pleasure to be here. And yes, I absolutely can. So I am a barrister at Garden Court North. And yes, my work is inquests, public inquiries and actions against the state. And that covers actions against the police or prisons. So firstly, what they actually are. So an inquest is it looks into how a person's died. Um, and what's quite important in an inquest is that it also looks into whether things can be learned from that person's sad passing and whether things can be learned that could prevent other people ending up in a similar situation. And then in terms of my public inquiry work, these are big investigations um, where there's public concern about a matter. So I'm currently on the COVID-19 inquiry and I was previously on the, the Manchester Arena bombing inquiry. And that's basically to look into the government's response and the police's response to how those events were dealt with. And then in terms of the actions against the police and prisons, let's say that one day, Alma Constance, you're arrested for no good reason and you want to do something about it. It's in situations like that that you might try and find a lawyer that works in actions against the police and they can try and get you compensation for the treatment you faced. So that's what I do. And on a day to day, it really varies. Um, But one thing about barristers is that we're self-employed. And that means that in a lot of ways, our personal life 
kind of becomes mixed in with our professional life too. So this morning I went to the gym and then I went into chambers and I prepared for this podcast actually. And then I, I was meant to have a, a mental health tribunal case tomorrow. And that's basically someone that's trying to now get out of hospital. And I was going to be representing that individual, but, but the hearing's been postponed. Um, so that gives an indication as to my day so far, but it varies every day. And I think that's something you learn to love and also not love sometimes about the job. Why did you decide to do this kind of work? So I think for me, it, it comes from quite a personal experience. So Alma, how, how old are you now? 11 and a half. Okay, okay, 11 and a half. Okay. So when I was, I reckon I was about six or seven. And um, I was, I remember, it's probably probably my earliest childhood memory. And I was at my granddad's house in Nottingham. Um, and his family were, were basically subject to racist attacks. So there were people smearing um, dog feces all over his car and it kept, happening and happening and we contacted the police and nothing was done and I remember at a really early age thinking gosh what do you do when the very institution you're meant to turn to for support isn't there supporting you and I think in that moment I just realized or certainly as I've gotten older and thought about these things but I realized it's really important that people are there to help people stand up against prisons or a police force and uh, that's what I hope to be for just ordinary people so yeah that's that's how I got into this kind of work. Can you tell us about the stop and search powers of the police and whether they can create problems for young people? Sure, I think they can. Um, Yeah, that's the reality. I think they really can. So stop and search is a a power the police have. And the most common stop and search is what we call a reasonable suspicion stop and search. And the law would say that if the police reasonably suspect that you're carrying something illegal, um, perhaps drugs or something that's stolen, in those sorts of circumstances, they can stop you on the street and they can can search you. Um, Now, anybody of any age can be stopped and searched. And uh, there's a lot of law relating to stop and search. It's not something they can just do. They have to have this reasonable suspicion in the vast majority of situations. But I think the problem for a lot of people is that stop and search is disproportionately used against ethnic minority people. So actually, if you're black, you're about nine times more likely to be stopped and searched. And the reality is that more often than not, stop and search doesn't find anything on a person. So there are real concerns about its use. So, you know, it's an important policing tool, but only when it's used properly. Quite recently, there was a case where they kept the name anonymous and the person was called in in the papers Child Q. And that was a young girl that was subject to what we call an intimate, a strip search effectively, where they required her to move all of her clothing, search her. Um, But there were real issues about that because in that sort of situation, there really should have been an appropriate adult, a parent or guardian um, with her during that process. And there wasn't. So although the police have these powers, uh, it's always important that there are people out there, whether that's lawyers, but also the public that are aware of where where the limits to those powers lie so that if they're overstepped, they can be challenged. I think it's important to explain a bit about the powers that you have as well if you're if you're stopped in search. So let's say you're one day walking back from Tesco and the police pull up beside you. Let's say they want to stop and search you. The minute you hear the word search, the acronym WILD R should go through your head. Um, and for nearly any type of search, the police need to tell you the following. So WILD, you know, the first letter is W. W stands for Y. So they need to tell you why they want to search you. The second letter is I, identity. The officer needs to identify self or herself and the police station that they're attached to. The third letter is L. Um, that's for law. They need to tell you what law you're being searched under. The, the next letter is D for detained. And they need to tell you that you're being detained for the purposes of the search. 
And then finally, the final letter is R, and that's for record. And that's, you know, you're entitled to have a copy of the stop and search record. And that's basically a receipt that you've been stopped and searched. But those things are important because in a situation where you're you're being stopped and searched, it can feel so overwhelming. You can feel like you don't have any control. And it means that when that ordeal is over, you've ensured that you have the record of the search. So let's say it keeps happening to you and you keep getting these receipts of stopping searches, you know, for no good reason and you want to do something about it. You can really prove that it's been happening to you. I saw in the news that there was an inquest into the death of a teenager and that social media played a part in how she died. Can you please tell us about the inquest procedure and explain why social media was mentioned? Of course. So... An inquest is an investigation into a death which appears to be due to unknown or violence or unnatural causes. And the inquest is designed to find out who the person that passed away was um, and where and when and how they passed away. And that how is quite a big question because that means you can really look into the circumstances of how the person passed away. So you mentioned um, the inquest where social media was mentioned and that was the really sad death of a girl called Molly Russell. And the coroner said at the closing of that inquest, and I should just say the coroner is effectively the judge of the inquest. They make the decisions, they listen to everything, and they then say what happens at the end. Um, But they said that Molly died from an active self-harm while suffering from depression and the negative effects of online content. And basically, in Molly's situation, um, the algorithms on social media were pushing to her content about self-harm and suicide, which is obviously awfully problematic, and it shows the very worrying power actually that these social media companies have these days one power that the coroner does have is the power to write something called a prevention of future death reports and that's something that the coroner has indicated that's going to happen and that basically says look xyz needs to change so that a death of this nature um can't happen again or we can take steps to try and avoid it happening again so it's encouraging that the coroner seems to be leaning towards writing one of those prevention of future death reports, but it's just an awfully sad case. And I think it goes to, again, the issues when you have power that can go unchallenged. And I think earlier we were speaking about the police armor, but even with social media companies, it's important that we can challenge them where they're wrong, because that's the only hope we have of keeping them safe for us effectively. Why is it important for people to be able to challenge organisations like the police? So... And there are a few things. So there's firstly a point about miscarriages of justice. And that's basically where, as an example, somebody might go to prison that shouldn't have gone to prison because they hadn't done anything wrong. Um, One of the first things I realized when I became a barrister, um, and I I knew this before, but it was really brought home when I became a barrister. And that's that the police sometimes lie. And that was a huge thing for me because although I knew it, I'd never been in front of paperwork where it just so evidently showed the police had lied. And you would be really surprised how frequently cases go to court, to a local magistrate's court or a crown court. And there's a person saying, I did not do what the police are saying I did. And then right before it goes to the trial, you know, when there's a final analysis of, well, what evidence actually is there? All of a sudden, the prosecution, so the people trying to say that this person did the bad thing, all of a sudden it comes to light that the police have just lied and the case gets dropped. So it's it's scary. And I think you only need to see that happen once for you to think, no, that there is a problem here. Um, and I think the only hope we have of police not lying is when they know that there are lawyers out there or individuals out there that are ready to challenge them if they do. That's still not often enough, it, frankly, but it's um, it's a step. 
I think the other thing is that the police force is made up of real people and real people have biases. And um, I know earlier I was speaking about the fact that if you're black, you're about nine times more likely to be stopped and searched. And I think the reality is there again, if if the police are going to be wrongfully stopping people, again, you can only try and curtail that behavior if the police know that they can be challenged if, if they if they do so. And I think the final point is that the police carry out a really important function. They they investigate crime. And that's a big deal because it means they can be incredibly intrusive. They can, let's say you're one day arrested. The police can look through your text messages, messages you've sent to friends, your family. And that's a very big responsibility. Um, and it's important that they know that if they do something wrong with that information, they can be challenged about it. So that's why I think it's important for people to be able to challenge organizations like the police because they have such a large amount of power. And actually, the police knowing they can be challenged is one of the few ways we can try and put a bit of a check on their power. Have you ever worked with children as witnesses, victims or defendants? And can you tell us about that? Of course. So I've represented children in, in the youth court. I've also represented children as victims as part of the Manchester Arena inquiry. That was the bomb that took place at the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. So I was part of a team representing the families there. I'm also currently in the process of representing a two-year-old boy that died at an inquest in Rochdale. So I think when it comes to those sorts of cases, speaking about the one in the youth court, and the youth court is basically like a magistrate's court, but for young people. And uh, I think the cases require a bit more sensitivity. It's important that you take your time to explain things in, in maybe a bit more detail because, you know, it's a scary time for anybody. I've had grown adults cry on my shoulder because of the day they're going through but particularly for a child it's important you take that a bit more time to explain things to them but I think also when somebody's a child things that happen in their life can can change the the direction of their life so somebody being in court and there's the potential for them to be sent to prison or for them to receive a criminal record those things can have a really big impact so I think it's important that you you always try hard for your clients. But I think when you're representing a young person, you really dig super deep because um, this is going to affect their life in some way. So you want to make sure their life has been affected in the best way that was possible in, in the circumstances. How could there be more education about law for young people? I think it's important to start by saying that it's absolutely scandalous that at the, the moment law isn't taught as a compulsory in schools. Um, Because the reality is the law will punish you whether you know the law or not. So in my view, it should form a a key part of the curriculum. Um, And the reality is the law is there to try and, or you'd like to think, to kind of set the moral fabric of society. So, for example, if there are laws out there that are there to deter you from a certain behavior or action, if no one knows about that law, then the law isn't actually deterring them from doing that. And equally, if there are laws out there that give you protections, Alma, if you don't know the law, how are you able to claim those protections? So it really is on a on a very deep level a problem that law isn't taught in schools. And I think in terms of how there could be more education, we've spoken about social media companies here. And something I was just thinking about a little bit earlier today, actually, I wonder if when children join social media companies, there maybe needs to be a few compulsory accounts that all children have to follow. One might be on the basics of the law, one might be on the basics of financial management, and one might be on the basics of, say, keeping healthy. And that means that, you know, the person can follow any other account, but at the very core, whenever they log on social media, maybe one in every 15 tweets they see will relate to something that is really important they know for their life. And I think the reality is that we have to 
come to terms with how life is right now. And the facts of the matter are that people spend a lot of time on the internet, a lot of time on social media. So if we want to have a society whereby the law is that bit more deeply ingrained into it, it might be these resources that we need to turn to. So in my view, they're the key steps that could be taken to make sure that there's better education for children about law. Can you please tell us why you decided to write your book, The Law in 60 Seconds, A Pocket Guide to Your Rights? Of course. So at the time I was living in London, it was the year 2018, and um, Stop and Search was all over the news at the time. So um, Piers Morgan and various other people on TV were talking about the pros and cons of Stop and Search. But I thought what was being missed out of that, Alma, was the fact that that the reality is that it's people that look like me that are more likely to be stopped and searched and wrongly so as well. And, you know, there were there were real calls to increase stop and search at that time because there was a lot of knife crime at the time in London. Um, and I knew that would affect me. I knew that would affect my friends. So if, I should just say, actually, while The Laurie in 60 Seconds is a book now, it started as a series of videos on YouTube. And uh, the first video I ever recorded was literally a 60 second video, almost just for my friends on what to do if you're stopped and searched. And then it was me doing that that made me realize that, gosh, like people don't know this information. And then I was getting strangers just messaging me as a 24-year-old then with their deeply personal legal queries. I remember thinking, you've never met me before, but you feel that there is no other place you can turn to to get the important legal information you need. So there's a series of videos. So your rights, if you are overcharged in a taxi or you want a refund in a shop or your landlord wants to kick you out. And then I think from there, I realized that maybe videos weren't enough. And at that point, I thought, well, actually, maybe a book would be more ideal here. And that's what happened. And that's how The Law in 60 Seconds came about. And the idea always was that it would be something that's affordable. It's a small book to find the relevant answer. It's something you can flick to quickly and within a few pages, hopefully find what you need. So that's why I decided I wanted to write it. And yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased I did. Can you also tell us about your views and experience of the importance of diversity in the legal system? It's incredibly important that there's there's diversity in the legal system. In fact, I think it's incredibly important that there's diversity near enough any system, to be honest, Um, but particularly the legal one that has so much power, the power to send people to prison, the power to change people's lives. And I think it goes to a number of areas. Firstly, the minute you become a lawyer, you realize the issue in terms of the lack of diversity. So I would say on more occasions than not, when I go into court and no one ever thinks I'm the lawyer, I'm always thought of as being the, the defendant, especially on in the days when I was going into criminal courts. So that's the first thing. But I think the second thing is that there's an issue about believability. So let's say Let's say I'm not a lawyer and I go to court, right? And let's say I've been accused of something. And let's say maybe it's a low-level offence and I actually did it, but there were really good reasons why I did it. And if there's a barrister representing me, that probably just gets a bit about my lifestyle, where I'm from. When, although I'm admitting I've done it, he might be able to put forward an argument that means that I don't go to prison. So I think there's an important point there. I think in addition, we can't ignore the fact that there was a there was an MP armor called David Lammy. He wrote a report called the Lammy Report. In the Lammy Report, it actually said that if you're a black person, you're more likely to get a harsher sentence than a white person. And why that's significant is because it's it's the sort of thing that we in the black community have been saying for years. But unfortunately, there was very little concrete evidence that this was the case. And the, the David Lammy review showed this to be a fact. Um, it also showed that often when black people are being referred to in courts, they're referred to as gangs as opposed to just, you know, groups of individuals or whatever. 
and to reframe it. In a diverse system, it's much harder for those sorts of things to persist and um, because the unconscious biases that are at play are limited when the system is more diverse. Um, and I think the final thing I'd say on that is that the reality is that there are so many barriers to getting into this profession. And whilst those barriers persist, the legal profession won't be diverse. So I could show you my wig and my gown that cost me thousands of pounds. I've worn it about three times because the types of courts I go into, I don't need to wear that attire. But um, when you when you consider how much that costs, when you consider the fact that for a person to train to be a barrister now in university can cost around £20,000, whilst you're on that £20,000 course, you have to take about 12 trips up to London, if you're not from there, to go to different dinners you have to have before you can qualify all of a sudden it really adds up. And the fact of the matter is, unless you're from a family that can afford to support you, you won't become a barrister. And that automatically rules out a lot of people. So I think whenever there's conversations about diversity in the profession, we also always have to have the conversation about the barriers to the profession and the ins of courts, those that are running the legal courses, the profession need to take responsibility for that. Um, Yeah. I have a question I ask all of our guests. What were you like at 10 and what did you imagine you would go on to be as an adult? (laughs) This makes me laugh. So at 10 years old, I I was a very clumsy 10-year-old. I've only just grown out of my clumsiness, I think, if I'm honest. But I really liked table tennis. I really wanted to be a table tennis player. And my parents were really firm. They didn't want me to be a table tennis player. And obviously that dream never materialised. But uh, yeah, I I was definitely into sports a lot. But I don't think anyone would have would have thought that I'd become a lawyer, to be honest. And I'd never thought of law at the age of 10. I think the only thing I did know in terms of profession is that both of my parents are self-employed. And I didn't like the idea of having a boss that tells me how to live my day to day. I think I always liked the idea of having a job that where I could be living life on my own terms that bit more. And I think as a barrister, you are technically self-employed. So in some ways, that bit has been consistent. But um yeah, I'm a very different person now to the, the 10-year-old Christian Weaver, which um, it makes me laugh as I think about it. Thank you so much, Christian, for talking to us today. Do you have any final advice for children who want to understand more about the law and their rights? So for, for, those, for those old enough to be on social media, you might want to follow some lawyers on Twitter, and particularly the, some of the younger lawyers, just to get an insight into what the law's like. Those that are at the, the very junior end, where they're still that little bit more relatable. And um, I would say, you know, if you're in your school, ask ask your teachers, hey, can you find a lawyer, a judge to come in and do a talk? Can you find somebody that's been accused of a crime or convicted of a crime has come out of prison? Can you find them to do a talk? I think there are so many different strands to the law and that the best way is by actually speaking to those that have been in the legal system, not as the lawyer, but as a person going through it. I think in addition, attend legal events, not all of it might make sense, but some bits will. In May of this year, actually, I hosted a public legal education conference in Manchester where, where um, lawyers came in to just educate the public on their legal rights, all, all for free. We covered your rights when you're shopping, your rights in relation to, to, to loads of different things that you know anybody can find interesting. So come along to things like that. And the final thing I'd say is the Law in 60 Seconds videos on YouTube, um, they really do explain basic bits of the law that it might be worth just checking out. So they would be my bits of advice on that. Well, Alma, what do you think about what Christian told us? Well, Christian told us why being able to challenge those 
who hold power over us is important, as everyone needs to obey the law. I was really interested to hear about inquests and that the coroner acts like a judge and is able to make recommendations in a report to help prevent future deaths. In this really sad case recently, the coroner thought that harmful online posts had played a big part in a young girl's death. It is shocking that black people and those from ethnic minorities are more likely to be stopped and searched for no lawful reason. He explained our rights in relation to being stopped and searched, and you can find out more on his YouTube channel or in his book, The Law in 60 Seconds, A Pocket Guide to Your Rights. I really enjoyed the fact that he actually wanted to be a table tennis player when he was young. In our podcast, we've been exploring how laws work and affect young people. Christian has emphasised how laws affect us every day, and this knowledge allows young people to manage their dealings with other people. It is important for us all to understand our rights and responsibilities so that we can make informed decisions, not only about our lives, but also about voting for the MPs who make the laws and understanding how the legal justice system works. It's also important that children know they should be kept safe and that adults must care for them. Remember, if you have any worries, talk to an adult you trust and tell them how you feel. This includes your teachers at school who are there to look after you too, so tell them if you need to talk to them. You can find more information on our Kids Law Info website. Keep your questions coming in. Please subscribe, rate and share the podcast with your friends. See you soon in the next episode. Bye. Bye.